basis of our argument, there are in fact two ways in which we can see ourselves. We can use our powers of imagination, as illustrated so beautifully in Mustachio, to subjectively re-experience the past. And this creates an array of realities, some of which actually happened, and some of which we recreated as we revisited and remembered them. But there's another way in which we can view the world. And that's, rather than using our imagination system, the other way is we can use our knowing system to describe a series of facts that London is the capital of England, for example, or that this is the anatomy Theatre in uh, the prime point to be made here is that in the knowing system, as just mentioned by Nikki, knowing that the capital of England is London is a label. And a label, once attached to a thing, becomes an unquestioned identifier, a fact indeed. And thereafter, its provenance is, is never really queried. Using the imagination system opens the door to identity because we each create our own personalised memories and imaginings. We're both authors and owners of our thoughts, simultaneously. The imagination system allows us to question realities because we can explore different perspectives simultaneously without having to believe the seat that we're sitting in right now, for example. Now, we can see the distinction between knowing and imagining as being labels versus identity. Now, the thing about labels is that they are empty shells. They're the most cursory of indicators, the covers on a book, no more, often revealing very little of what really lies within or is beneath the surface, frequently deliberately hiding the very thing we might want or need to see most. For the purposes of illustration, and in an, an attempt to explain what we mean, let's look at some labels right now. In truth, it's easy for us to see these people as labels. We recognise them as such. All the indicators are there. These men are excellent examples of what we mean. They tell us nothing or, or very little about themselves or the person that they are within. And most interestingly, they, they exist outside of time. Now here's a very striking label and one that penetrates our consciousness immediately. And this next one is subtle by comparison. The man indicates a lifestyle and something of the time in which he exists, but nothing of who he is. And this young lady is wearing a mask. Can we see anything at all of what is going on behind it? Her label seems to say, I am a doll. And these people tell us more of their loyalty to the company they represent than anything else. How can four people have exactly the same smile at the same time? And the offer here is for us to become as exciting and as successful as this young lady by wearing the same underwear. Uh, in fact, it didn't really work for me. <laughs> and uh, we actually uh, showed this slide when we were doing this lecture for the Duke of Kent was there, sat in the very front, and this is very embarrassing. Um, at this point I said, and in this slide we can see that the people on the left look almost as real as their waxwork equivalent in Madame Tussauds. I, I apologise. Uh, and this man, as he appears here, is a very rich stereotypical label. We recognise him more commonly in this form. 
And these examples of James Bond are particularly fascinating. I think they really help to, to define what we mean by label. Next, let's look at some examples of identity by comparison. Now, we perceive these images as having an identity because they more easily invite and enable us to use our imaginations to see, and thereafter make sense of the objects of our gaze. It's the only way it can be done. Our imagination is the door to creating and understanding identity and consciousness, and that's other people's and our own. It helps form who we are. It allows us to make sense of our individual past experiences and also our collective memories, enabling us to know each other and ourselves. It tells us where we are now and provides the vision to know where we're going, where we might be going next. And it's also very much about time, and that's past present and future. Three points that triangulate endlessly within the equation. Were any one of them lacking, imagination would fail. We would have great difficulty deciphering the world around us. Indeed, it could be argued that in a world where labels are increasingly proliferating, it's actually becoming harder rather than easier to really know who we are, or to decipher the real clues defining identity, reality, or consciousness. I think it goes without saying that understanding our identity, who we are, where we're going, is crucial to our individual success and the success of all our futures on the planet. Now, looking at this set of, uh, real, of images of real people, we see that these people have been uh, caught un unaware, caught in real moments. Uh, they're living their lives. They're not gurning or grinning for the camera. We can, using our intrinsic mechanisms for empathy and intuition, make pretty accurate observations about the reality these people are living. It's an integral part of who we are to be able to do this. We're guessing, of course, doing little more than using our imaginations and past experiences to make sense of the world around us. However, uh, and here's an, important, here's an important point, imagination is the key to consciousness our own and other people's. And this is because we create our own memories and imaginings. They reveal much about the way we think, how we express and value our subjective experiences. And through it, we develop an identity. It's at our peril that we allow identity to be replaced by label. More than, more than ever before, there's a need to understand identity and consciousness in the modern world. It's becoming too easy and dehumanizing to rely on simplistic labels and ones that say more about social engineering than our ability to capture crucial aspects of our own humanity. The power of imagination, and you can think of it as a special gift, allows us to th see things from more than one point of view at the very same time while stood in a single position. In the mind's eye, we can adopt multiple perspectives, creating and recreating a whole suite of alternative realities. Now we've included this image also for a, an interesting reason, I think. It's intriguing the way in which it is both the label for what this icon has come to represent, whilst also presenting the identity of the person within as well. In consequence, for many people, of the humility and the sense of humanity in this image, will appear to be rich and usually large and scream out. And the only point being made here is that it is possible to read an image as both label and identity in certain situations. 
in the fully functioning mind, we can, of course, use both systems, knowing and imagining, to record information about a past event. And they can inform each other. For example, we all know when we were born, without remembering the actual birth, despite the fact we were probably there, I suppose. Uh, this known information can be integrated into our imagining system when remembering previous birthdays and planning future ones. It's one of the simplest ways of how these systems can work together hand in hand. Artists are primarily interested in identity and consciousness of the world around them to use their subjective experiences and re-experiences to see their own and the other people's realities. It's what they do for a living. Any way we might decide to deconstruct their work tells us much about who they are, but by association also who we are. In truth, it's a basic function that all of us engage in. Even when you read a book, there's a sense in which you're an equal partner in the process. And in the room today, maybe the audience, but as you've already seen with the memory text, you have your job to do. Um, the key point, I suppose, here is that there is an activity which we might choose to call perspective taking, which takes a crucial part in the pro process. Now this is what artists spend so much of their time doing. Let's check out perspective taking by comparing and contrasting two images. We're going to look at two paintings, uh, they're both called the Ambassadors. Uh, I'm going to flash them up momentarily so we can all see what we're looking at, and then we can go back and look at each one more slowly and in greater, day, greater detail. Now, the first ambassadors is the renowned painting by Hans Holbein the Younger. It was completed in 1553, and it's currently in residence right now in the National Gallery, just round um, the corner from here, it's a bit further down the road, I suppose. Um, in London, in fact, which, of course, as we know, is the capital of England. Uh, the second one is a version inspired by the first, and painted in modern times, uh, by me as it happens. Now here's an opportunity to engage in some perspective taking. I think it can easily be seen, even with a cursory glance, that each work might be loosely connected to the other. They both contain two figures, both men, surrounded by objects that by association identify and define them. Not as labels particularly, but as people with interest. The one image points to an interest in science and the arts, civilization, the intellect, and cultivation. And the other, a sense of the absurd, the ridiculous, a reality that knows of and has been affected by Alice in Wonderland and the tumultuous <coughs> 20th century. Two images painted by different selves in different times. On analysis, we find we can read, begin to read the iconography of both works. They tell us a series of interesting things. We see how times have changed, how interests and attitudes have altered, and we can, con we can conjecture about what that might throw up about the human condition and how it has become different over time. We can make reasoned responses and educated guesses, guesses about these things, but it must be remembered that they are often only guesses which can curiously shimmer and change as times pass. It's doubtful, for example, that any of us here to, today could hear and respond to a Beethoven symphony 
as Beethoven's uh, contemporaries might have heard it, or even as Beethoven heard it himself. And I don't just say that because I know he's deaf. The problem being, we were not there at the crucial time to know. But if we could look in the right way to see the right kind of patterns and make the appropriate deductions, and if we were gifted with the ability to see with insight by collating such information, then we might see something of the event itself. We could imagine this, couldn't we? Or, maybe better still, we could deduce something new, something that has never been seen before. Now, this is the nature of creativity. You can't do this with the knowing system, not, not with just a bunch of labels. And that's why imagination is the door to identity and the gateway to creativity. New ideas and ways of seeing become available by understanding how to imaginatively look at ourselves. But more than that, maybe it's possible to discover ways to see beyond ourselves. So, this demonstration illustrates another important point, one that we all witnessed at the very start when we did the memory test and the magic, namely the ways in which the imagination system <coughs> alters our memory of the past, questions the integrity of what we thought we believed, saw, heard, and reveals how ideas are altered and transformed by time. We no longer know exactly what Hans Holbein was saying for sure in his work. We have some evidence, and thereafter, of course, we can conjecture. We can fill in some of the gaps with our own understandings. But the truth is undeniable. For history is another land. It may as well be an alien mind. OK, I'm reading a short extract again. Shorter than last time. In the gloom, he had followed the lines of the streets with his thoughts and had eventually found himself at the tango on the river. The dancing was glorious and he had lost himself to moments that opened up for him. The release, as ever, had been joyous. It was as if he was outside of time. The spirit of the experience flashes before him again. He observes it remotely quantifying the sensations, checking and wondering if his observations still matched his earlier recollection. Even in this short time, he recognised that his sense of recall, his remembrance, had all altered in some way, beyond his control. What had he missed or forgotten? What had altered? So, that's another extract from my sport mustachio. And the passage describes the magical moments of remembrance and captures the ways in which we so frequently monitor our own subjective experiences and question their authenticity. Thanks to perspective taking, we have the ability to use a range of options, alternative realities, if you like. There's some hit and miss along the way. Not all our ideas are successful. But ultimately, and certainly so far, it's been a great way to develop our understanding of the world around us. Uh, there's a downside to this. Um, the downside is that using the imagination system to record our ideas erodes our memories uh, in a way that the knowing system does not. For each time we retrieve the information from our imagination, we end up re-evaluating re it. 
um, we reevaluate all that has gone before, often creating new versions in, in the process of doing so. Now, this would never happen with a label. So the process is both disadvantageous and opportunistic in equal measures. Ideas formed within imagination alter through time. And that's also another thing that gives us creativity. But they can come full circle to further erode our memories and cause us to doubt what really happened. What would it be like to deprive ourselves of some of these aspects of our consciousness? Now we can explore this most easily perhaps by looking at people who've lost the ability to imagine, uh, to look for clues as to how it changes their operating systems. So let's consider the case of case C, who provides first-person narrative evidence of the nature of the world of an otherwise normal person, except for one thing, he can't imagine. Past or future. Casey's the little chap on the end of the Romney Cone hair. He was born in 1951 in Toronto, and everything was more or less normal for the first 30 years of his life until he suffered a debilitating brain trauma due to a motorbike accident, which resulted in severe damage <coughs> to his medial temporal lobes and an almost complete loss of the hippocampus, a part of the brain that we know plays an important role in imagining and remembering. He has normal intelligence and he knows lots of facts about the world, so he knows the difference between solid types and solid mites, and of course he knows that 007 and James Bond are one and the same, he knows about physical time of clocks and calendars. But what he can't do is project himself backwards or forwards in time. He can't remember anything that's happened to him. Nor can he imagine the future. The striking thing about Casey is that however hard he tries, however powerfully he's prompted, he can't bring a single event into his conscious awareness. He has no subjective experience about himself. All he has is timeless, selfless labels. So when asked to remember his brother's wedding, like this photograph here, for example, it was taken at that time. Although he recognises all the individuals in the photograph, but they are his family after all, he has no recollection whatsoever of the wedding. For example, why he had curly hair and had the day before. And although he knows that his brother, with whom he was inseparable, is now dead, he remembers nothing about the terrible circumstance in which his brother was killed, or where he was himself when he heard the devastating news. All he feels is blankness. And he feels the same kind of blankness when he's asked to recall images of the future, as he does when he's asked to remember the past. It's just a nothingness void. It's as if he wasn't there when the events actually happened to him, but was merely told the facts afterwards. Because he can only use his known system, he doesn't possess what all of us take for granted, what we do for a living, having an ever-present awareness of oneself existing in a subjective sea of time, always in transition from what was once the future and now rapidly the past. An ultimate question we can ask is whether other minds, alien minds if you like, share any of these processes of imagination with us. 
who just looked at a patient who was a result of, of an act, terrible accident, doesn't have it. But what of other animals? They might create a window of opportunity for us to ask whether they might be capable of such deeds. And if they are, we might be able to explore the processes they use, helping us also understand more about ourselves. So uh, are we unique amongst the animal kingdom in being able to travel mentally in time? Many people would argue that we are. Uh, surely no other creature we share the planet with is capable of painting the Sistine Chapel or making sense of the works of Shakespeare. The idea was perhaps most eloquent, eloquently expressed uh, by Robbie Burns in his lament, uh, Ode to a Mouse. You can imagine that uh, Robbie Burns has just ploughed through a, a mouse's nest in a field and he's feeling riddled with guilt at the thought that the mouse, mouse would surely die as a result of his carelessness, his careless actions. But all of a sudden, a thought pops into Robbie Burns' head, a little poem in actual fact, and he turns to the mouse and he says, Still, thou art blessed compared with me. The present only touches thee, but oh, I backward cast my eye on prospects drear, and forwards, though I cannot see, I guess and fear. Well, I can't speak for mice, I haven't studied them, but I'd certainly argue that crows are capable about, of thinking about the past. We kind of thought and the future. We kind of thought that you might say that. Being the expert on crows. <laughs> um, you said the other day you've been studying crows for 25 years now? It's a bit oh, scary, isn't I it? I believe it. <laughs> well, memories of the crow family, and here's one example here, the rook, it also includes ravens and magpies and gays, hide food. And the only point for doing so is in order to be able to <coughs> recover this hidden food, we call it food caching, in a future time, as a tasty meal for later. Now you might think crows are a strange choice, but we know that these birds are remarkably intelligent. In fact, they perform on a par with chimpanzees, and they have huge brains, and hence their nickname, feathered apes. And what's more, these birds have quite remarkable memories. Uh, you can show the tip of the mouse nut crack at this point, can't you? Yeah, sure. The greatest master of memory lives here. It's not a mammal, but another bird, the nutcracker. It too lives in North America, along the Rockies and here in the Grand Canyon. It depends on pine nuts, but these nutritious nuts are in season for just three weeks in September. The bird flies as far as 20 kilometers between the pine trees and suitable sites to store the seed. <coughs> the nutcracker buries the nuts for later. It drives them one at a time into the hard soil, and the spot is sometimes marked with a stone.
three hectic weeks, the nutcracker gathers its nuts. As it flies, the bird remembers landmarks, broken trees, rocky ridges, and incorporates them into its mental map as we would street corners and traffic lights. In the short time of plenty, the nutcracker has to learn the locations of the 30,000 nuts and berries at sites scattered over hundreds of square kilometers of the Grand Canyon. Its landmarks are not remembered like photographs. Snow transforms the landscape but does not confuse the bird. It finds 90% of the 30,000 pine seeds it buried. Surely one of the greatest feats of memory in the world. So animals can think, at least about finding their way. Their minds are capable of more than learning by trial and error. But is this the limit of animal intelligence? Or can they think in other ways as we do? <coughs> okay, that's pretty interesting. Remarkable that that bird can remember so much. Um, Nick, can you tell us more about what the crow's known? Well, let's begin by looking at this caching behaviour. I spent quite some years now studying the caching behaviour of this species, the Western scrub jay, and this is caching. It's hiding in waxworms, the Belgian truffles of the scrub jay world, in these little ice cube trays. And they're amazing caches as well. And in fact, they can remember quite a lot about individual caching events. They can remember what kinds of foods they've hidden where, and how long ago. And they can also keep track of who was watching when they were hiding the food, so that they know when to come back and protect their food. So they're, they're great at, at monitoring what other individuals are doing, as well as what they're doing themselves. Uh, how about imagination? Are we ought to think about that. Uh, you said that they plan ahead. Uh, how do you know that birds can be thoughtful? Let me start by telling you about an experiment in which we asked whether they were capable of planning where to cash for breakfast. So, during training, they had six days of experience in which they could explore, in the top little diagram here, three interconnected rooms, and they were given powdered food so that they could eat, but they couldn't hide anything, and therefore they were neither rewarded nor punished for actually catching the food. And in the morning when they woke up, they always ended up in one of the two end compartments. And some days they ended up in the left, say, where breakfast was served, and in other days they ended up in the opposite compartment, the right, say, where no breakfast was served. And having had six experiences of this, so three days in which on one side they got breakfast and three days in which on the other side they didn't, they were suddenly given a novel test in the evening of the sixth day. Now they were given a bowl of cashable items that they could physically hide, and two of those little ice cube trays, like you saw 
in the video clip. One place in the room that normally serves breakfast, and one place in the room where they normally wake up in the morning hungry. And what we found is that they, having eaten their fill of food for now, they specifically and spontaneously hid the food in the hungry room, suggesting that indeed they can plan ahead. And interestingly, in an analogous task, children don't pass this sort of test until they're four years of age. That's quite amazing to, to consider, though, isn't it? It's, it's quite stunning, isn't it? Of course, we don't know whether the birds are using their imagination system to do this planning ahead, or whether they're using their knowing system. And without language, it's impossible to tell. But experiments in children in an analogous task called the blow football experiment suggests that young children find the imagining system harder to use, or at least they make more errors when trying to use the imagination system. And here's one example of this. Here you can see this little table, and the child gets experience of standing on the high side where they can easily reach. And then they, and they play the game, and it's deliberately set up so they win, and therefore they're very motivated. They want to come back tomorrow and play the game again. They're told when they come back tomorrow, they're going to play on the other side, the low side, the blue side by the window. And just like the birds are given the opportunity to catch things for later, the children are told that they can choose two of the things to save for the next day. There's a team badge, and a cut-out referee, and some trainers, and a cuddly toy, all of which are fine, but going to help them at all with the game. And then there's a box that they'll need tomorrow in order to be able to reach the table from the low side, and a straw that really helps them for the game. And here you can see an example of a typical four-year-old's response. Now, tomorrow, you're going to come back and play ball football. And when you play tomorrow, you're going to be on that blue side of the Now, as well as the condition of ball football, point to the two things you will have to say to play ball football properly on that blue side. What two things you have to say to play football properly the team match, point to it. And one team match. Box in my box. It's in a box. 
Sierra? Very good. And besides the ball, what other thing would he have to play or say to play low football properly? The straw, I'm not a straw. The blow ball. You know what? You are a genius. Bless. Now, in fact, if we ask children to do it in the present, so we tell them that they're going to come back right now and play the game again, then in fact they have no problem either for what they want now or what another person will do. So it seems to be that it's something particular about projecting oneself into a future time that the young children have difficulty with. And sometimes, even as grown-ups, we have difficulty with that. How many of you have been to the supermarket when hungry and suddenly found you bought loads of extra junk that you wouldn't normally buy simply because you've been hungry? I know I'm guilty of that. Now, the fact that we can understand how we see ourselves and think about these futures and the kinds in which sometimes we have a bit of difficulty sort of dissociating what we want now from the future, is exemplified <coughs> by the science that we discover and the art that we make. Truly great art understands how we think. And excellent science discovers how the processes work. They don't always have to be what we expect. And indeed, when they don't, they can be even more interesting. Okay, so uh, let me just show you something right now, if I may. Um, you've probably uh, got the idea already that I'm a little bit of a magician. Actually, from nowhere, I can produce a coin. This coin, for the purposes of our argument, represents the present, now, where we are. In fact, if I just do the same thing again, I can produce another coin which represents the future. Now actually, this becomes the present, because it just happened, so this now must become the past, of course. Um, and indeed, if there was a coin to represent the future, it would be just here, like that. So three coins that represent past, present, and future. We'll call uh, this one past, we'll call this one present, and of course the future's not yet arrived. So in actual fact, there is nothing left. Okay, so we have the, the past and the present. However, if I click my fingers, the past vanishes and we are only left with the present. A single coin. Thank you very much. However, so we have the present. But don't worry, because I, I am a magician, so there's a new future coming along. In fact, you have to watch my elbows very carefully. So I just do this. You'll see that the new future arrives. And of course, by doing that, it becomes the present and the past vanishes. <laughs> Indeed, we can take the ever-ready present that's here right now, the thing that's around us, that we know is here, that we're so sure of, and that amazingly shimmers in various ways as well, to the point where it can vanish too. But it does reappear when we least expect. So that's the present. As I look into the future, or if I listen to the past behind me, I can produce a past, like so, past and the present. And using the past and the present, we can build a future for ourselves in any form we so choose.
future is where we're going to live the rest of our lives. So it's important to choose wisely because the decisions that we will make will have a major impact on the length and the quality of our lives. Not to mention that of the planet on which we live. We live in times where there is now some confusion about what the next new future is that we need to anticipate and embrace. The postmodernist world is coming to an end. And the conjecture is that we are at the fin de siècle. This is a time in which to change the perspective and learn to see with new eyes, if at all possible. It's time to find new possibilities in our science and in our arts. And the insights we can gain about ourselves and other alien minds have any potential to open the door to new ways of thinking, providing a gateway to understanding alternative realities and ones beyond our own. Now that's our future. That's where we want to go. So we all need to work together to be ambassadors for our own futures, for our collective consciousness. Thank you.